0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, and uh, I am the President and CEO of the New York Historical Society, and it's a real pleasure for me to see all of you this evening in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, I want to remind you that on view right now is a very powerful and moving but important exhibition on the first five years of the AIDS epidemic in New York. Uh, If you haven't already seen it, I hope you will return during regular museum hours to see it. Also, opening on June 21st is a wonderful uh, new exhibition called Swing Time uh, on Reginald Marsh. I see there's my, somehow my my dog tags just got, (laughs) that's, thank you, (laughs) just got displaced. Thank you. I, I won't be able to get back into my office ever if I don't have that. So, um... Anyway, I hope you'll also uh, join us for the opening of that wonderful exhibition, Reginald Marsh's Paintings of the 30s on uh, June 21st. And um, of course, as always, I want to make sure that everyone here is a member of the New York Historical Society. If you're not already, one of my colleagues on your way out this evening will be uh, ready and very willing to um, to help you join. Our members uh, are extremely important to the well-being at the institution and support our exhibitions program, our education uh, programs and wonderful evenings like the one we have ahead of us. Tonight's program, Revolutionary Summer, the Birth of American Independence is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series and as always I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support which makes it possible for us to bring so many great historians and writers to the New York Historical Society. I want to thank the many members of our Chairman's Council in attendance this evening um, whose generosity and efforts on our behalf are so important to us, and also to thank trustees in attendance this evening, Lon Jacobs, uh, Ira Unschuld, and Michael Weisberg. Thank you so very much for everything you do on our behalf. Tonight's program will last an hour and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach standing microphones in the aisle to my left and the aisle to my right. We do this so that the people on stage can hear your question and so too can the members of the audience. We are thrilled to welcome back Joseph J. Ellis, one of the nation's leading scholars of American history. He recently retired as the Ford Foundation Professor of History at Mount Holyoke College where he taught since 1972. He also served there as Dean of Faculty for 10 years and as Acting President in 1983-1984. Professor Ellis currently teaches at the Commonwealth Honors College at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's published 10 books including American Sphinx on Thomas Jefferson which won the National Book Award and Founding Brothers, which won the Pulitzer Prize. His newest book is Revolutionary Summer, The Birth of American Independence. We are also delighted to welcome back Stacy Schiff, who is our moderator this evening. Ms. Schiff is a renowned biographer and the author of the best-selling Cleopatra, A Life. She won the 2000 Pulitzer Prize for biography for her book Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov. And uh, she is the winner of the George Washington Book Prize for A Great Improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America. She's received an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters as well. She is currently working on a book about the Salem Witch Trials. Wow. (laughs) Can't wait for that. And now, uh, as always, before we begin, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything like a cell phone that makes noise is switched off. And now please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage.
1: Hi Joe. Hi there. Steve. You've this been
2: is one tough woman. I told her no softballs, fastballs, but <laughs> down the
1: mill. This is a softball. You've been over this terrain. You kind of know this cast of characters pretty well. You've been over this terrain. Um, from multiple angles, but this is the first time that you've um, taken a chronological view, giving us the summer of 1776 from May to October. And by the way, if we needed proof that you are not from New England, that would be it, because that is not summer in New England. I'm um, from Virginia. Yeah, clearly. Did you, did you pick those months because those months center on New York and you knew you were gonna be at the New York Historical Society tonight, or what, how did you pick that one particular season?
2: I picked the summer of 1776. I was looking for a kind of crescendo moment that I could write a story about, Uh, in the same way that you're doing it for witches. And um,
1: oh, let's talk about that.
2: ah, (laughs) And in some ways, being the um, contrarian I am, I said, "What's the most familiar story in American history, and how can I tell it in a different way?" And that ended up being the happening of American independence, and the chronology, you know, who was it? Hegel, I think, said, chronology is the last refuge of the feeble-minded.
1: I was gonna ask that. But way, it's but I the only refuge
2: for historians, and, um, you know, this comes and this comes. And it, um, And what's, what a lot of people don't know, and that this book attempts to emphasize one of the things, the war starts 15 months before we declare independence. The war starts in April of 75, and independence is not declared until July of 76, as we all know. And that fact is really big because it, it shapes the mentality and it, it, it develops what becomes a consensus for independence that hadn't existed before. To answer your question, because you know I always evade your questions because they're always so elusive, that um, (laughs) it's May because that's the moment when we can say that um, that, uh, there is a consensus among all 13 colonies and within the countryside that we're going to go to war and seek independence from Great Britain. That consensus had not existed before then. And we've got good evidence for that. ask me questions, and I will tell you what it is. And, um, And that October is when Washington escapes from the Battle of New York and gets to White Plains. He was trapped on Long Island. He was trapped on Manhattan. We can talk about the military tactics if you'd like. If the British were to win the war, this was their best chance. They could have annihilated the Continental Army in the first battle of the war. They had them twice. they get away.
1: So by the time those two chances are lost.
2: When those two chances are lost, it becomes a protracted war. And the conventional position is... How could a ragtag group of 13 colonies come together to defeat the number one military power in the world? England's not the number one army, but if you put the army and the navy together, they're the number one military power. And if you think about it, how many wars did Great Britain lose between 1750 and 1950? Two, the American War and Afghanistan.
1: And, um, we're, very, and we're, so very, we're very grateful We're really, that. you know, and uh, we,
2: we, should, we really learned a lot about that. And um, <laughs> um, so the real question isn't, how could the Americans win? The real question is, did the British ever have a chance? Because they were fighting a war that they didn't understand. It wasn't a war of armies. It was a war to subjugate the American people. And they would have needed 800,000 troops to do that.
1: Do you wanna talk about that for a second? Because I think that's something we forget, that initial encounter of the British soldiers with the Americans, where there's that sudden realization that, oh my God, they speak English and they're not black.
2: Yeah, the, there's a, the, when the British uh, troops, and there's a lot of Hessians in there too, there's 15,000 Hessians coming in, there's 42,000 British troops that come across the Atlantic in uh, May, June, July of 76. It's the largest amphibious force ever to cross the Atlantic until, the, until World War I. And um, they're going to squash this thing in the cradle. And, uh, and they, the uh, Long Islanders send out, and there's a lot of loyalists on Long Island. Long Island is really a loyalist stronghold. They don't think they're being invaded, they think they're being liberated. Um, uh, the loyalist comes out to, uh, with a, a tender to help them negotiate the shoals and all the soldiers say, he's white. <laughs> they thought all Americans were black. I mean, it's unbelievable, I know, but that's what they said. And um, I mean, they thought they'd be wearing, you know, loincloths and other stuff like that. So that the impression, and one, the other thing that I found out, that's, you know, this is minor in some sense, but that the British lost more men and equipment and horses, Getting there, they lost a thousand men on the voyage because the big killer is microbes. The weapons of mass destruction of the 18th century are viruses and microbes, and there's no defense against them. Once they get to Long Island, all they got to do is kill Americans. That they're you know they're in, they're in good shape, um, uh, so. I mean, and you know, throughout the American Revolution, the vast majority of, of casualties are a result not of combat but disease. Um, and anyway, um, I'm going on in the next. Ask me whatever you want to do.
1: Any, anything? <laughs> um, because you mentioned the 42,000 um, soldiers. Let's let's talk about this. Um, we have some experience today of Congress acting cluelessly, um, but. <laughs> Why was the Continental Congress so nonchalant um, in the late summer of 1776? There are indeed 42,000 soldiers yeah, and sailors yeah, sitting around. Yeah. I, I was amazed that you took to page, I think, 149 to use the word delusional. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, this seems to be the... She has level. a good
2: eye, doesn't she? Yes.
1: <laughs> You're fun to read. Um, Congress keeps going forward with a political agenda while Washington is out there. You know, basically st- being strangled. Yeah. Um, they just ignore the calamities. There's a
2: delusion. There is a delusional mentality present in the Continental Congress in some sense. Okay, now in other senses, they're extraordinarily realistic. But what you're talking about, Washington's army, the, what becomes co- comes to be called the Continental Army. It's not very continental at this stage. It's 80 percent New Englanders. Um, has defeated the British around Boston. Now they really didn't defeat him, they just, they had him outnumbered three to one and eventually the British sailed away when the Americans established tactical supremacy on Dorchester Heights. But it was regarded by the Congress as an example of the fact that amateur soldiers fighting for the cause with virtue rather than money as their motive, could defeat the, the best army in the That's world. That's delusional. <laughs> it's not delusional if you're part of the cause. <laughs> um, and it, is, it turned out to be delusional. Washington sort of knew that. Okay. And when he gets down to New York, and he looks at the terrain and everything, I don't know whether you guys know this, but New York is an archipelago. It's Staten Island, it's Long Island, it's Manhattan. Whoever controls the seas controls the battle. There is no question who controls the seas. This was an unwinnable battle. that should have never been fought by Washington. Washington should have said, let's take my troops. He had about 15,000. It was amplified up to 28,000 by militia when the battle actually starts. And said, let's head to New Jersey or Connecticut. Draw them inland fight a war of posts. It's a quasi guerrilla war, okay? Why doesn't he do that, okay, in retrospect? A couple of reasons, and they relate to your question.
1: Shockingly.
2: Ah! (laughs) One is, he's won this battle. When did the British land? They land on July 2nd, the same day there is a vote for independence. How would it look after you've just declared independence if you retreat completely from the field, and they stu- And as said, they maintain this uh, delusion that they believe in. Okay, that this army can hold its own against the British army, which it won't be able to do. Um, uh, anyway. With those two thoughts in mind, Washington has a third reason for wanting to fight. And he has to get over this, and eventually he will get over it, but it takes some time. Washington is an honor-driven character in this story. Um, And he believes that if the British Army, in this case General and Admiral Howe, present themselves he is. This is a challenge to do. You cannot reject that without losing your honor. And therefore, I must defend New York. Um, now, the longer he watches these art, these armament or the defense sects go up, and watches the British ships build, he sort of knows. Oh my God. You know, how is this going to, and he thinks it could be a series of Bunker Hills. That's the way he thinks about it. Bunker Hill was, you know, one of those British victories that nearly annihilated the British Army. They lost half their attack force, 2,000 out of 4,200. William Howe, the general who's in this same battle in Long Island, led one of the regiments up Bunker Hill, and which is really Breed's Hill, and he had a staff of six. And he had a servant carrying a uh, brandy on a <laughs> you know, whatever he was holding, totally wiped out. He wasn't injured. He was never scratched. He's like Washington. All these things happen around him. He never gets hurt. Um, it, 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 it had a big impact on him. Um, and Washington wants Long Island and Manhattan to be a series of bunker hills, to extract blood and, and casualties from the British, in, in, even though they lose in the end, okay? Although the problem in, in New York is, if you lose in the end, I mean, all they had to do was plug the top of Manhattan, okay, you know, where the, the, um, the you know, the river, the East River and, what's the name of the Harlem River separate Manhattan from the mainland. Then they would have had them trapped. They had them trapped in Long Island, too, before that time. They don't do that. Um, and so in some sense, it's really lucky. It's, it's lucky in part because, this is, the I'm talking too much now, the Howe brothers really don't want to annihilate the Continental Army. The Howe brothers want to fight a balanced, limited engagement that demonstrates conclusively and stunningly, you can't win this war, and then having done that, negotiate a peace that ends this stupid war. They think it's a stupid war. They both voted against it as members of parliament. Um, But by not annihilating the Continental Army, if there ever were, were a chance for Britain to win the war, that's the moment that... The chance is lost.
1: I want to talk about <clears throat> that peace overture, which is one of the great undelivered letters in history. But uh, but let me stop for a second because you make a good deal of honor. Mm. I mean, it, it it comes up repeatedly here that really really almost medieval and today lost sense of honor, and that's a perfect example on Washington's part. Um, but are there are there other examples? I mean, my sense is that these men remarkably know that they are on display, that they are really. Mm acting for posterity. I mean, Lord knows John uh, Adams was born that way, but everybody Adam else... certainly does, yeah. Right, but everyone else seems to be aware of the fact it's, that... There's
2: several, it, that's a great question, because it's several layers of that that you could talk about. The one you mentioned is certainly true. This is the first generation of Americans and Brits that come of age at a time when they're not sure that they're gonna go anywhere else when they die.
1: Which is a remarkably new concept.
2: Yeah, yeah. They, they, Adams and, Dad, Jeff, and Adams and Washington both think they're going into the ground, maybe. Uh, that's it. Um, there's famous stuff with, um, with Boswell and Johnson on this. And, um, and so the only form of immortality that really exists for them, apart from their children, I guess, is secular immortality, living on in the memory of succeeding generations, posterity. Um, So in some sense, this Mm -hmm. honor-driven behavior is partly, they're on their best behavior, because they know that someone in the New York Historic Society 230 years later (laughs) is going to be listening. Um, uh, So that's one thing, Uh, and that's a big thing. Um, There's a famous historian, well, that's a a guy called Douglas Adair called Fame and the Founding Fathers who wrote about this, and uh, Mm -hmm. so it's not totally original with me. Um more commonplace, if you're standing in a line and the other side is coming towards you and leveling their muskets at you, why don't you lie down? Okay? If your men and, and are being disemboweled and beheaded next to you, why don't you go get behind something? okay? Or, if you're overwhelmed and need to uh, avoid complete collapse and annihilation, why don't you retreat? Because retreat is dishonorable. And in and, and, and Washington's case, Washington will refuse to order a retreat from Long Island until everybody on his staff tells him that's what you have to do. He would not himself do it. It's his, in his view, that would be a repudiation of his own art. He needs to get over this, okay? (laughs) And eventually he does. But I'll tell you, this is a story, that's not in the the book, I don't think.
1: we're getting the outtakes now?
2: Yes, we are. And um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and, like, when Washington left Mount Vernon, he said to his uh, manager, a guy called Lund Washington, who was his second cousin, said, when, not if, When the British come to burn Mount Vernon, (laughs) get my books out and get Martha out, not necessarily in that order. (laughs) And he assumed he was going to lose everything. When they said their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, that wasn't purely Jeffersonian rhetoric, although it was that too. and three years, four years later, a British frigate comes up the Potomac and anchors off Mount Vernon. And Lund, Washington, worried that he has hostile intentions, sends a skiff out with fruit and gifts. And the British captain says, oh, I'm just fishing for herring. <laughs> and so Lund writes back and tells him this story, tells Washington this story. And Washington says, I am extraordinarily upset. You have disgraced me. You have sullied my honor. Next time, let them burn it to the ground. Okay? That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. That's honor in that context.
1: Let's talk about. um George Washington, since you seem stuck on him right now. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. And that's yeah. good because I, I want to talk about him in terms of leadership, which I hear is something you don't believe in. Um,
2: well, as a con- as an academic okay. concept, okay. Yeah, it's like pro- it's like um, you know, what's the Supreme Court justice said uh, you know, uh, huh? Pr- huh? It's not huh? Proctor Stewart Jr. Yeah, And, you know I I know it when I see it and. Um, uh, he was talking about um,
1: pornography.
2: pornography yeah okay.
1: right okay, we well, know
2: leadership when we see it it's not around there too much these days and um, go ahead all right sorry. so you're
1: talking well this you tell me how this qualifies as leadership then um, you've written of Washington as someone who leads by listening He's mm-hmm. certainly the most silent person at the Constitutional Convention. He spends a lot of time above the fray, mm-hmm. beyond the fray, marginal to many battles. Um, tactically, instincts are not always so great.
2: Nobody nobody lost more battles than was right, a great general. Right. Yeah.
1: He's hatching at disastrous schemes, monumental blunders along the way. He doesn't really get along with most of the other founding fathers, which I don't think anybody That's really writes about. That's not completely
2: true. Okay. Well, how does
1: Thomas Jefferson feel about Washington?
2: L- initially, they're buddies. Right. In- Initially, they get along okay. great. Okay. Okay. Then, then Jefferson basically does the stiletto thing to it. And, um, <laughs> right. and Washington finds Which may out about it. They have more to do with Jefferson. Yeah, Je- that's just to Jefferson's do with main okay. style. He, gets, he loves that. <laughs> and, um, um, and Washington finds out about it. And, and at the end, they won't speak. And when Washington dies and they move the Capitol to Washington, and Jefferson's the first president to occupy the presidential mansion there, it's not called the White House yet. Um, he asked Martha if he could come out to Mount Vernon and pay a visit to the widow, and she says, no, my husband said he never wanted to see your presence on this property.
1: you want me to finish my question?
2: Yes. <laughs> sorry. I'm
1: sorry. Um, no, no, so my question is simply... I might be simply... the only
2: person that says more words than she does. But...
1: <laughs> my question is simply, is he a consummate politician or is he more of a military commander. In other words, many mm. other people have said of him, he's a great, I mean, he's obviously a great showman. He's a great propagandist in many ways. Is there a way in which that actually serves him better than does his military expertise?
2: He's not a great general, okay? If you think about it, most of the great generals end up losing. I mean, Hannibal, uh, Napoleon, Robert E. Lee, um, Rommel, Washington wasn't a great general, but he won because of the insight we mentioned earlier. He knew the only way to lose is to try to win. If you fight a certain kind of strategic war, you you can you, you, you will win, and he has that insight. Um, so, in that sense, as, as a military leader, he's a poor tactician, but he's a great strategic thinker. I'd rather have a strategic thinker, okay? I mean, Westmoreland was a great tactician and a horrible strategic thinker. And we could have never won the war in Vietnam uh, in the way that he wanted us to. As a as a political leader, what what's you know it, it's easy for us to forget, but that he so levitates above everybody else in the that generation. Um, that I mean, he if if you go read the Constitution and see what it says about the powers of the presidency, try to figure it out sometime okay it it's extremely evasive because there are two ghosts at the banquet in the Constitutional Convention one is slavery and the other is the presidency slavery for obvious reasons The presidency, because it's monarchy and Washington defines the presidency in terms of what it can do in a way that's vastly expansive in terms of the literal language of the, de- of the Constitution. So I think at both military levels and political levels, he's not, he's not a politician in the same sense that Madison's a politician. But he understands, he has, the thing he has is judgment. He gets the really big things right. That's the reason all of the other founders say he's numero uno. And in both military terms and political terms, there are four or five moments when if he didn't do what he did, we wouldn't be sitting here. And that's a big deal.
1: Let's talk about the guy with the stiletto in that case. Um, ah. you know, I love what you've done with the Declaration here, because you really have made the drafting of it seem um, completely fresh. You make it seem as if it's just this administrative chore that has to be dispensed with in the middle of everything else. But you point out that the first two paragraphs of that document, um, that we hold these truths, um, are the only two paragraphs that no one messes with.
2: Yeah. Um, Isn't also, that funny?
1: Yeah, it's great. It's, you may also make Jefferson seem like the whiniest author. It's like, what did they do to my manuscript? You know? He was
2: that. He was that. Yeah, um,
1: yeah he seems a little bit mm-hmm. that way. Um, He's a the, bit
2: of an adolescent.
1: I think that might be why i like him the, the, rest, the rest of the document though gets worked over and no one pays the slightest bit of attention to those two paragraphs which i think lincoln says are the paragraphs from which our country grows right so what does that say about our revolution that no one's even paying attention to what we today consider to be the things we were fighting for
2: uh um you want me to go to the no next it's one? right No, it's right no that's i i i'll say something but you've got it right The the first two paragraphs, and especially the paragraph 55 words that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, have come to be regarded since Lincoln's time as the most important words in American history and maybe in modern history.
1: Joe, were they not regarded that way before Lincoln? No. I didn't realize
2: that. No. I mean, in other words, it's when the war becomes a war over slavery, or when the politics becomes a war over slavery, and Lincoln interprets these words to have a decisive uh, effect on how we should understand our origins, what he called the mystic chords of memory. Um, there's not much made about I mean most of the people writing about that think of it as a kind of orchestrated rhetorical pre- prelude, and so they spent a day and a half revising the language of the Declaration. They made 83 separate changes. They deleted or revised between 23 and 25 percent of the text. This is what upset Jefferson, Jefferson. okay? Oh, they're mangling my text, you know. He kept copies of the original, you know, and he kept sending them all to his friends. At the end of his life, he said this. Um, It helps us to recover the context of the moment. Historians are all about context. What they needed to do was justify their secession from the British Empire. That meant severing their relationship with the king. They had pretty much severed their relationship with Parliament, the only thing linking them to the empire now was George III. Therefore, the grievance section of George III was almost legalistically the most important thing. And each colony had an interest in how that story was told their way, because their own experience of that was slightly different. So that's what they focused on. And what did I say? That's a chapter called uh, The Dog That Did Not Bark. And it's just in the, the Sherlock Holmes story. And like, The Dog That Did Not Bark is this first two paragraphs which they don't talk about they don't notice it gets right by and it slips the entire liberal agenda for the 19th and 20th century into the document now did Jefferson know that was what he was doing no but do the words say that yes yes I mean, you it is know it's kind
1: of a weighty accident when you think about it
2: indeed, it is it is, but um the way the words have been read and interpreted over the succeeding two centuries um it's incontestable that that's the american creed and that and I would argue now this is where you're, you're going to be on stronger ground than I am that most lawyers, when they talk about the founding document. They're talking about the Constitution. And uh, if you're talking about the principles of the government, I agree with that. But the founding document is the Declaration. That's what Lincoln always believed. Okay? But you
1: make the great point that Washington, too, rises to great rhetorical heights that summer. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if because they have no... Because militarily they are at such a disadvantage, Mm -hmm. poetically, they compensate in some way. Yeah, I mean, There's, yeah, a, there's yeah. a huge amount of r- he, brilliant rhetoric. You know, he gets
2: that. the the, the, de- the draft of the Declaration gets from Philadelphia to New York in about five days, and he makes he has it read to all the troops. It's read by battalion, but battalion, battalion, battalion. So there's not one gathering of all the troops. They couldn't do that. I
1: think that's where the movie opens, don't you think?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think this could be a movie too. I agree. Yeah, and um, um, but. Um, But he issues his own statement. And Jefferson, you know, here is this guy Jefferson, you know, never fired a shot in anger, never volunteered for the military, wants to be somewhere else. His wife is not well, he's going to turn out to die in childbirth. Um, And he drafts these poetic words that are extraordinarily lyrical and evocative and have lived, you know, proven themselves over time but they're kind of, you know, floaty. Washington says, well, this is the declaration. This is what it says. And all those words are meaningless unless we all live and die together fighting this invading force at this moment. In other words, like all the ideological and political hope now depends on something much more basic being willing to die, and that's what a lot of them are going to do.
1: Your cast is a familiar one, um, with one exception. That's John Dickinson, Hmm. the most prominent um, advocate for the colonial rights, a moderate man, um, an impressive constitutional thinker. Um, Why has he been lost in the pantheon?
2: Because he, he doesn't. He's he's a he's a very smart guy. I mean, he's one of the best ed- educated in, in British uh, legal, in the inns of England. Um, he wrote a pamphlet called uh, Pennsylvania Farmer, and very popular. <clears throat> he's married to a Quaker woman. Adams always said that was the end of him because um, you know, and, and he can't imagine a war with Great Britain as anything other than suicidal. And therefore, he can't vote for independence. And he doesn't. Pennsylvania votes because there are four delegates in Pennsylvania. But he's only one of them, and he doesn't do it. And ironically, he's not there to vote because he goes down to New Jersey to join his, or Delaware, maybe it's in Delaware, to join his militia unit to defend the coast against the invasion of Britain. So he's. He's not a coward by any stretch of the imagination but he's of a moderate temperament and he really thinks that this whole problem should have been avoided that that you know this was a wave that should have gone under the ship and like he's right it should have right so he's um, the
1: unwilling patriot
2: yeah he's he's the reluctant patriot he's the conservative revolutionary and um, although Adams is that too. I mean, Adams, but Adams more radical in, in system independence. This is what makes these, this, these guys somewhat distinctive too, um, that the radicalism on independence is almost always associated with the conservatism, um, in a Burkean sense of the term, um, in terms of political values. Um, these are not the people that are gonna make the French Revolution happen.
1: Let's talk about John Adams quickly just because I love to talk about John Adams. Yeah, he's my um, favorite guy. Oh, how could he not be? He, when he's appointed board, head, head of the Board of War, he's utterly unqualified, but he does what John Adams always does, which is to say he scurries to the library and takes out a bunch of
2: books. He says he, order, he tells his buddies up at Harvard, send me all the books on armies and battles that you know about.
1: That's, that's you know. how he learns to speak French, too, instead of like meeting real French people, he studies while living in Paris. He does. Um, he actually,
2: he's got John Quincy trying to quiz him, because yeah. John Quincy can learn the language twice as fast as he can. Um, yeah. So the
1: question is simply, how, do we have any idea how Washington takes the news that John Adams is in charge of the Board of War? Um.
2: Yeah, they actually meet right as that decision happens in May of '76. Washington goes to Philadelphia, and it's late May, so things are really getting hot, and you know, and we're moving towards uh, the resolution of independence, and um, and the British navy, the armada, is getting closer, um, and. It's not the first time that Adams and Washington meet. They met in Boston when the siege was going on. Washington was very impressed with Abigail, and Abigail was really impressed with George. In fact, when in the letter, she said, You told me that he was a, he was a physical specimen, but you did not specify how. <laughs> <laughs> so I always said, He was like, think of Washington like John Wayne. Uh, 1939 <laughs> stagecoach, you know. And um, when they when he died, they measured him. He was six, uh, three and a quarter, and 202 pounds.
1: But that's not what he told his tailor, right?
2: He told his tailor six feet and and proportionally uh, whatever. And of course, that's the reason his clothes never fit him because um, <laughs> uh, he wasn't accurate. People back then didn't have the same specificity about height and weight that we do. You know, it's like. Uh, he's a head taller, you know, they didn't have measurements, that, they didn't think that way. They didn't, in time, they didn't, they didn't clocks and stuff like that quite yet. Um, I have
1: one more question for you and then let's open things up to the audience. Um, you mentioned in your acknowledgments that um, Pauline Mayer had read the pages for you, the great scholar of, of the Declaration, and that she um, early on wrote in your draft pages, Joe, you can't say that. So what had you said? <laughs>
2: I still disagree with Pauline about this. And if she were here, you know, I know. And um, Pauline wrote a book called American Scripture on the the way the Declaration was drafted. And it's the definitive work on that. Um, But listen up here. On May fifteenth, the Continental Congress sends to all the colonies a resolution written by Adams saying, We urge you to redo your colonial constitutions and write state constitutions. Adams thinks this is the real decision. And it's a big debate. Two states refuse. Uh, Pennsylvania and New York don't support it. I say this is a de facto declaration of independence. Pauline says, you can't say that yeah I can because uh, um, that's what it is and um, I mean what do you you know if you're going to rewrite your constitution you've decided that you're no longer part of the British Empire. but she's got her own reasons there you know I think it's a forest trees problem for Pauline but um, uh, but she also offered criticism of a subtler sort that I listened to and took and so I thank her um, because she, she knows a lot about it.
1: That was an elusive answer. Um, there are two microphones on either side of the room. Um, please feel free to approach either one. Um, tell us your name before you ask a question. Questions are um, heavily preferred to statements. And um, one question would be great as opposed to several questions. And there are two staff members at either side who can help you. Um, and why don't we start with this gentleman.
2: Hi, Professor. My name is Adam Rodriguez. I uh, just said uh, a few seconds ago that you thought Washington was 6'3 and a quarter, but Ron Chernow, I guess, disagrees, and you kind of alluded to that. Um, right. So, was he 6'3 and a quarter or was he six feet? <laughs> uh, here's the, if we want to know Chernow says this, he, the advice he gave to his tailor is the authoritative primary evidence, and that's six feet, okay? If you go to Mount Vernon, you know what they say? Six three and a quarter? Six two. (laughs) And they say six two because there are a lot of people that say six two during the the time. Soldiers that served in the French and Indian War. They also, they're not unsophisticated. When they were measuring his body for the casket, they think they pointed the toes. Right. Chern okay. brings it up. All right. Yes. We, we get down to this. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> and that therefore it added an inch and a half to whatever he really was. Yeah. Okay. And so they believe it's 6'2. This is one of those things that will never be resolved. Just think he's a head taller than anybody else. Adams had the great line. Adams said, whenever Washington, people say, why did we always select Washington to lead us uh, whenever we gathered? And he said, because he was always a head taller than any man in the room.
1: Go ahead, sir. Good
3: evening. I'm Samuel Cantor. You mentioned earlier uh, Washington's tactical failures. So with all that being said, who, in your opinion, was the best tactician that the Continental Army had to offer Nathaniel the
2: war? Green. Absolutely. Green's conduct of the Carolina campaign's brilliant Um, with 1,200 men, held off 8,000 British, basically bled them to death and forced them to flee up to the Tidewater, which is where they got trapped. Uh, Green is the most um, strategically and tactically talented of all the American generals, without question. And Washington knew that. When Green dies of sunstroke in 1785 down in down in the off plantation in Savannah, um, Washington says, you know, he would have been the greatest leader in the post-revolutionary world. He's married... This is a movie, too, by the way. um, He's married to this woman called Katie Green. Katie Green is, can I use this word, the Cleopatra of the American Revolution.
1: How do you define your terms, Joe?
2: She sleeps with everybody. And everybody falls in love with her.
1: Those are different things.
2: Yeah, I understand that. But, but they are connected. And, um, and, um, and, uh, and like, Eli, get this. E, she, after her husband dies, she living in this plantation down in Georgia, and she's got like five kids. Most of them, I presume, by Nathaniel. And all these former officers in the army come down to to propose to her. And she turns them away. And she wants a tutor for her kids. And she writes to this, to Yale. And they send this guy down, who is the guy that invents the cotton gin.
1: Eli Whitney.
2: Eli Whitney. I think she co-invented it with him. Yeah, yeah, and since 1793. And, um, and when Washington is president, they had these things called levies. You know, every week, these are very formal occasions. And the only time anybody ever saw Washington express himself in an emotional way was when Katie Green came, the widow of General Green, and he kissed her on the cheek. That was like, oh my god, you know?
1: There is a man in there somewhere. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Sir.
2: I'm Jim Pusinich. Um You mentioned the dagger and Jefferson. Uh, stiletto. What, stiletto. Yes. Yeah. What was um, what was Washington's reaction to realizing that Jefferson was the financial source behind the Aurora, the newspaper that constantly vilified Washington? Not so much financial. He was he he was paying um, some people, but he but um, he was leaking information as uh, Secretary of State. We would regard now. As treasonable acts to the Aurora, which is the sort of um, what do you it's Fox News of its day, and um, <laughs> um, uh, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe it initially. He really didn't. He, he said, "I know him," and and it took a while, it, it, a couple of you know incidents, to to, to convince him, and then. In the kind of way that Virginia gentlemen tell other Virginia gentlemen what you know what they think, he wrote this letter. And if, if I give you this letter, it's it's impossible for you to know what it's really about unless you know everything that is going on between them under underneath here. Okay, it's so elliptical. Um, he never said anything directly to Jefferson uh, that. Indicated he would you know he didn't feel good feel uh, friendship towards him, he said to a lot of other people, "I never want to see him again." Uh, Lawrence Da, in terms of uh, revolutions, other revolutions, in the past three, four hundred years, where would you place the American Revolution in terms of expected uh.
3: outcome, difficulty, etc?
2: That's obviously a toughie. Um, in some sense, the American Revolution is not really a revolution. Um, it's not a revolution in the same sense that the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution are revolutions. It's not a revolution in the Marxist sense of a, a, a removal of one class and by another class and regime. It's more like a war for colonial independence. It's like what Algeria did and what many of the Latin American countries did uh, and African countries. Uh, it's the first of those. So is it a revolution? In some sense, I think it's not really a revolution. It's an evolution. It establishes a set of principles that it doesn't fully comprehend itself, as Stacey has called attention to, that become the fundamental basis for the modern liberal nation-state. I think that's a revolutionary contribution, and so does Hannah Arendt. Um, so it's a different kind of revolution. Um, uh, when um, Rochambeau, the French general that helped Washington defeat Cornwallis uh, at Yorktown, gets back to France, and the French Revolution is starting. And Rochambeau says, you know, I'm interested in the difference between your revolution and ours. And by the way, he's going to end up getting guillotined a couple of years later. Um, he says, it's the the Americans like to take their soup and blow on it <laughs> until it cools down. The French drink their soup scalding their throats. Now that's only a metaphor, but. Um, Rochambeau was calling attention to the fundamental difference between a revolution that's actually run by people with conservative temperaments and one led by people who are radical utopians. Anybody talks about utopia, head the other way, baby.
3: My name is Michael Wolfe. I'm a docent here and at Francis Tavern Museum where I quote you every week.
2: Oh, thank and you,
3: sir. I hope, I hope you don't mind a what-if question, but it is serious. All right. If Washington were not available to lead the army, wow. if a tree fell on him in 1775, yeah. who do you think would have been available to do this?
2: That's a, I have thought about that, but not in the specific context that you raised it. I was, when I was writing the book, that, that we all need to purchase, obviously, and, um, um...
1: I believe you mean to say in multiple copies. Well, yeah, that's right.
2: And, uh, my son has to finish college and all that. Um, that the question I asked of five distinguished historians, four or five, Edmund Morgan, Gordon Wood, Pauline Mayer, um... David Hackett David Hackett Fisher. And this guy called Ed Lengel, who's the editor of the Washington Papers, said, what would have happened if they had killed or captured Washington on Long Island or Manhattan? Because they had the chance to do it. Lengel said, there was no one to replace Washington. And the, the rebellion itself might have collapsed. All four other people said it would have changed the way the war played out, but it wouldn't have changed the outcome. They asked that question of Adams in his old age. you know they used to show Adams pictures of you know these little little statuettes of Washington he'd go ooh i don 't recognize him here and it um,
1: 's because he thought he was six foot two
2: <laughs> and um but What Adams said we'd have just found we'd have found another Washington. we would have raised another hundred thousand and we'd have found another washington um, we, you know, there wasn't any way we were going to lose. Um, now, if you look at washington's staff, the only guy that could have replaced Washington was Nathaniel Green. But if Washington had been killed or captured on Long Island, so would Green. so this is one you can just argue at. Of the tavern forever about, and profitably.
1: You're not going to tell us where you vote on that one, though, right?
2: I end up voting with my old mentor, Ed Morgan. I think we would have won anyway.
3: Good, sir. Uh, my name is Tom Wallace. Um, I did my history studying in the 50s at Yale, which you brought up, so I can admit that, and we were taught much more european history than american history so my knowledge of american history is appalling and i bring this up as a footnote but going back to your very i thought interesting concept of honor and that generation's feeling towards honor and secular immortality which brings us to nathan hale uh maybe because i did right down here yeah which i did my graduate work Yale, maybe that's why, and I've spent too much time in the Yale Club Bar. The question, which interests me, we know what Hale said, and we know that the mythology of Hale is much more important, I'm sure, than what he actually did. My question is, what intelligence was Hale gathering? And I'm not sure this was the summer of ninety of seven of seventeen. 96, or maybe even 97, as I say. My knowledge of history is rather flimsy. 76, 76. But I'm I'm curious what the intelligence was. How important was it? Or is it this mythology and this wonderful statement, I regret that I have only one life to give, which has made him this iconic figure, which he is? Uh, He was a
2: Yale guy, young guy at the time. The American Continental Army was occupying northern Manhattan, having been driven off Long Island, and southern Manhattan was under the control of the Brits. The vast majority of the indigenous population was pleased to have the Brits win. They were joining their their side. They were the Tory loyalists. And they wanted somebody to go be a spy and try to identify people that were, could be used as counter-spies. And find out intelligence. Um, he volunteered, stupid thing for him to do because he was really you know he didn't know anything about it. He, had no he was a C- Yale man. He didn't go to. <laughs> he didn't have a chance. Uh, yeah, he you know and um, and so he, he didn't have his stories right. And in, in other words, it was a botched operation, and the mythology that comes from his eloquent words. Okay, but uh, it was an example of a. Attempt at undercover espionage that was uh, ridiculously planned, and that he was the victim of.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Mm-hmm. He got killed right down here, by the way, right down in Lower Manhattan. So they hung him.
3: My, my name
1: is Helen Friedman, and my question is the role of the French in the in winning, because I had always heard we couldn't have won without
3: the French, but that's not where you seem to be going at all.
2: Well, it's, it's, it's not far from the truth, okay? <laughs> the, um, the French, in terms of money, bankrupted their entire government to subsidize the United States. In fact, if you think about it, that's what caused the French Revolution because they had to call the Estates General because of the economic crisis that had largely been produced by the monarch's support for the American cause it's also true that the Battle of Yorktown two-thirds of the troops were French all the engineers were French the French Navy was the reason that they were pinned up so the way the war ended is very much a French thing it would have ended some way other than that on an American note regardless but, Legal, but the French longer. really, we owed them big time. Okay. OK, we did. We really did.
1: And the French Revolution is our little gift to them for their goodwill. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And then they gave us the Statue of Liberty. And, that was um, an equal change. But we saved them again in 1943, 44, right? 44. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the Normandy, yeah. I mean, it's their turn. The interesting. You
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> How, how do you want that to, to materialize exactly?
2: I haven't figured that a, out. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's um, maybe to um, to tell the EU that their austerity programs are crazy.
1: The interesting thing, I, I think, actually, with the French connection is the the what comes first: the declaration of independence or the reaching out to a foreign power for some kind of assistance? When, as a as a group of very disconnected, ununited—that's a word—colonies. Mm you have no money, no gunpowder, no munitions. They thought
2: of them both at the same time.
1: And it's really interesting to see, well, how, how, you can't make this overture to France until you've actually officially declared independence from their arch-rival Great Britain. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you can't...
2: Actually, Adams thought, the other way around, and it you shows know, you you know, he okay. was a contrarian, <laughs> Adams thought you needed to set up a separate American government, get a European ally, and after those things were in place, then you could declare independence, because then you knew where you were, and you knew that you had the support. Of course, it it played out in a totally different way, and he acknowledged that later on. Um, But from the beginning, they knew France was the potential ally. um, Well, it's always
1: good to go to the enemy of your enemy.
2: Well, you know about this. I I, I
1: wrote a book on Yeah,
2: that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But but, (laughs) Joe, you know,
1: you're talking about a period that is interesting, frustrating to an historian, because it's a period, there are no records of those congressional discussions. Um, That's true. So my question to you well, about- There's some. There's, there's some. some. There's
2: like letters where delegates talk about it. It's not a formal record, but it's, it's a, it's, there's a 37-volume thing, correspondence to the delegates. So it's pretty, you know, last 20 years. You know, we know more now than we used to know, but you're right.
1: Well, my question simply is, did you feel you were having to read between the lines to figure out what was actually being discussed? Did you feel you were getting a straight deal from the pieces we have left? Or did you, were you, was there something that was eluding you throughout that you felt if you actually had had congressional records (coughs) revealed itself? Excuse
2: me. Um, A little bit of both. I mean, I think that that's the challenge, and that's where, if the historian is to bring some imaginative uh, energy to it, that's where you can do it. Um, uh, I think that the example I would cite is not the French alliance thing, it's much the attempt to put together some form of government that fails in June, July, and August. Um, you know They want to put together a government, and it will eventually be called the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation is not a government. It is a league of independent nations, okay, it's like the EU. Um, that's not a government, um, um, and the guy that's trying to do this is the guy you mentioned earlier, John Dickinson, and he's got these twelve states, colonies. Rhode Island, of course, doesn't participate, um, and what they figure out is they can't agree. And the most important thing to see as a historian is not is the incoherence. Okay, to sort of give give primacy to the incoherence and to recognize that's all they could do at that time and not try to impose some ex post facto coherence on what was going on or to be critical of it. It's like they fundamentally didn't agree. There There was such a thing as the cause. There was no such thing as we the people of the United States. The first sentence of the most famous speech in American history is historically incorrect. When, Four score when, and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth in this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. <laughs> they brought forth a series of 13 sovereign states, provisionally united, to defeat the British Empire and then go their separate ways.
1: It so doesn't sound good. <laughs> when, when, do, when do we actually go to the United States instead of these United States?
2: After the War of 1812.
1: Um, See, been, I'm
2: ready for you this. This is good, yes. I, that's the one
1: I sent you yesterday. <laughs> no. um, you've been working with these with this cast of characters f- for decades. You probably know them as well as you you may know them better than you know your own family. So ha- have there been shifting al- allegiances? Are there shifting mm. affections? Is there someone whom you used to disregard for whom you've developed a, a, a later taste or yeah, the opposite?
2: Yeah, yeah. You and I share a fundamental affection for um, for Adams, John Adams. And, and I've written a lot about him and Abigail. Um, Franklin continues to look smarter and wiser the more you look at him. He really is the wisest of them all. Um, and if you had to bring somebody back to talk to, I'd probably pick him. Franklin. Yeah. He would spill the beans. and And he would underst- and he'd be more capable of understanding the world that we're living in than most of the other people. The guy, it's not in this book, it's something I'm working on, now. the guy who's really going up on the charts in my view is John Jay. Um, for reasons that I don't understand, the Jay papers haven't been published in the same way that the other founding's papers, and they've been hoarded, if you will, at Columbia. And Some of them are here, and um, this guy is big time, this guy is going to start to reach, uh, going to. Elevate, levitate into the pantheon. I think over the next. I Heard truck. it
1: here first. Yeah. Yes, sir.
2: Quick, quick question. You mentioned um, the shortcomings tactically of Washington as a general, and you also mentioned how his honor might have gotten away a couple of times. But you also made reference to four things that he did that made a huge difference. And then you mentioned one. Could you quickly go through all four? Oh God, I can't remember what I was re- what I was referring to. Um, well, I mean. He made the fundamental decision to commit to the revolution a year before anybody else did, and risked everything in the process. Um, He led the Continental Army for seven and a half years, never leaving it. Um, And there were moments there, not just Valley Forge, but including Valley Forge, when the Army is almost on the verge of extinction. Um, The states don't support the Army. We could, have, we could have turned out an army of 150,000 troops if the states wanted to do that, and they didn't do that. Um, he, he is prepared to come back out of retirement, and retiring in the dramatic way he did is you know quite, quite impressive, come out of retirement to chair the Constitutional Convention. If he doesn't chair the Constitutional Convention, it will be illegitimate. It, because they're not supposed to overturn the Articles of Confederation. They're supposed to reform them. This is a total replacement. It's, not, it's a real coup d'etat. And then, well, you, could, you, read the, you read the Constitution on the presidential powers. I said this before, I guess, and um, he defines the modern presidency. And there's a reason why every time they take these polls, Every four years. I think it's the Chicago Sun Times. I'm one of the people, one of the historians, the best historians and political scientists. There's three people that always end up as the top choices as the greatest president. If you do it among just ordinary Americans, you know who the two top choices are? Reagan and JFK. <laughs> but the top choices, in the scholarly world and journalistic world are Lincoln, Roosevelt, and Washington, and they switch around. Lincoln is up now because of the movie and all this other <laughs> stuff. Um, but when
1: your movie opens, it'll
2: be <laughs> I mean We'll try to get him back. But um, I, I think that it's easy to know why Roosevelt's great. He ended the Depression, or he won the war against totalitarianism, and it's easy to know what Lincoln did. Lincoln saved the Union. What did, what did Washington do? He created the union that Lincoln saved. We weren't a union.
3: Okay? And that's what he did.
1: And, and with that, we
3: want to say you, too, as a speaking team, are one of our most popular guest speakers. Yes.